Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of the Movie Brats Podcast. Uh, I am Carter, and with me, as always, is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm in the midst of final exams and grading, and it's almost done with this semester, so I'm swamped, but I'll take a break and talk about movies. And uh, because uh, theaters are closed, we haven't been watching too many new movies in theaters recently. Uh, we are going to look back at movies either we saw in theaters earlier in the year for the first time or movies we saw at home for the first time in 2020. So, Jonathan, what have you seen for the first time recently? Well, I will say I'll start with the first movie uh, I saw this year. I saw The Death of Mr. Lazarus, which is a two and a half hour Romanian black comedy drama uh, that is, yeah, that sounds like a great selling yes. point, but, uh, it's, uh, part of the Romanian new wave. There's also films like four months, three weeks and two days. Um, but this film is really terrific. I made my mom watch it and it's, uh, about a, uh, older man. He's like in his sixties and he starts having ailments late one night and he and his, uh, neighbors call, the hospital and basically in very documentary like fashion, very fly on the wall. You're just watching this old guy being shuffled from hospital to hospital and in, in, um, you know, in the hospitals just from room to room and nobody really knows what's going on with him. And it just shows the bureaucracy of the Romanian healthcare system and hospital system. And And that's where most of the comedy comes from. Well, it's not like, ha, 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 slap your yeah. knee funny, but it's just very, I don't know. It's you, You've seen foreign films where nothing really happens, but yeah. it's really compelling, and there's something that just really draws you in. Yeah, I found it really incredible. It's uh, It was one of the best-reviewed films of that year. It came out in 2005. I yeah, see a very of, small budget. Yeah. I mean, it's a movie for film geeks because it's, you know, about an old guy. It's like very long takes and it just ends when it, you know, it doesn't really have a big conclusion. I mean, spoiler alert, you don't even really know if he dies or not. It just kind of ends. Um, so, I yeah, remember, I, I, yeah, I remember reading about this when it came out and since it, on all those best movies of the 20 or 21st century so far, this one it always makes a high appearance. Uh, yeah, along well, with the one you mentioned, the four months, three weeks, uh, two days. I can't remember the exact title. Yeah, four months, three weeks, and two days is a gr- that's a truly that one of the greatest films of this century so far. It was like it's like one of the very highest rated films on Metacritic. Mm-hmm. But um, I was gonna say this film won't be for everyone because after I showed it to my mom, she said, "Well, that was eventful." <laughs> So yeah. she she wasn't too enamored with it, but uh, if you're in the mood for fly on the wall, dark comedy drama about medical stuff, it's it's very <laughs> it's very good. I, I'm not selling it, but it is a really terrific film. If if you don't mind a movie not being quote unquote fun, where did you watch out. that from? Was it a DVD, Netflix? I had it out of the Clemson University Library, and I watched it with my mom on January 1st. Uh, for, started the new year off right. Yeah, on a I, very bright, positive note. <laughs> right. Well, the next one I'll talk about after you do one is really is a really wonderful film to watch, like start the year off with. But what what did you watch sometime so this year? The last movie I saw in theaters is what I'll start with. And I know you saw it last year, but I don't think that we've spoken about it on this podcast yet. It's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, directed by Celine Shama, who I know has been very well regarded this decade for her films like Girlhood, but I had not seen any before this one. Had you, were you familiar with her work before seeing this movie? I had seen Girlhood in the theater. Which also stars uh, Adele Hanel, right, who's in this movie? Or she at least she appears in it. Is Am I right about that? I absolutely don't remember. <laughs> but uh... okay. Well, anyway, this was the last movie I saw in a theater. I'm already missing the experience. And this, to be honest, is one of the best movies I've seen in the theater in a really, really long time. Uh, It reminded me of the first time I saw Call Me By Your Name. I think getting a sense of immediacy is very difficult in a movie, especially when you see it in the theater and you're very aware that you're watching it in an audience with a lot of other people and you can hear the other people shuffling around and everything. But this is a movie that I just was totally locked into from like the first minute it started. Uh, It's just so beautifully captured and a lot of like you say like oh the great part about this movie is the nuances but 
a big part of this movie is just like the looks and the act of watching and stuff like that which really hooked me in a way that a movie had not in a really long time and uh this was one i recommended to a lot of people right before theaters started closing and i think it'll be available on home media through the criterion collection sometime starting in june if it's not already streaming on other platforms like possibly hulu I yeah, it's on Hulu. Okay. If this it's is on one uh, someone listening has not seen, I could not recommend a movie higher. It's one of the more beautiful and one of the great final shots of any movie of recent years. And so powerfully told all the different ways we like to see movies told with the music com- combining with the images as well as the stories and stuff like that. Just a sort of perfect movie. You saw this last year, I think, at the New York Film Festival. Is that right? Yeah, I had a pretty unpleasant experience watching it, but it's such a fantastic film that I sat through it with a fractured ankle. Um, I fell <laughs> briefly the... transported into a different uh, space. Right. I saw Pain and Glory, and ironically, at the Q and A for that film, uh, I fell and fractured my ankle. But the being the film geek I am, I sat through two more feature films and the third one of the day was portrait of a lady on fire and after that i really was in excruciating pain and i went to the hospital um what was the other movie i saw a movie called synonyms okay um which i sat i have not seen that but imagining a day of pain and glory portrait of a lady on fire as part of a triple feature is not a as for all the pain you were going through it's not a bad triple feature of movies to see no, and uh, I was just happened to be sitting next to the writer director Alex Ross Perry uh, uh-huh. when I saw synonyms. But so um, if he is ever listening to this and he was wondering why I was hobbling around near him, because uh, <laughs> I had fractured my ankle, I didn't know that at the time. But yeah. regardless of that, it's it is a very beautiful film. It's very moving and it's sensual without being. You know, it's 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 restrained, yes. but Very, it's also. I think there might only be like one scene where there's actual like sexual carnality in it. The rest of it is just sort of simmering below the surface. Right below the corsets. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. Yeah. It's. Um, it makes yeah, it's really just... good use of the period costume and everything, and just uh, the period like the big spaces with the uh, fireplaces and all that sort of stuff. And it starts so suddenly. You're just like on the boat with the woman, and like something falls overboard, and she goes after it. And you're like, okay, I'm just thrust into this narrative. I mean, that right. sort of reminded me of Call Me by Your Name. How that just sort of starts with the car pulling up, and okay, you're in the story now. Yeah, I would say that it's up there with uh, First Reformed and Whiplash is one of the best endings uh, yes. in the last number of years. It's so overwhelming and beautiful and heartbreaking. Yes. And, and Call Me By Your Name has another great ending, too, yes, and stay through the whole end with credits. a just great yeah. emotive performance, silent by, by the leading performer. Right. So um, it is on Hulu. It's going to be on Blu-ray in the Criterion Collection uh, in the coming months. But uh, my... Next one I'll talk about is also an exquisitely uh, photographed period piece. And uh, I made my mom also watch. I was still in Arkansas over the Christmas break. Uh, My mom and I watched the uncut television version of Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. Ah. And I had never seen any version of it. How long is the uncut TV ones? Four hours, six hours? It's it's about five hours and 15 minutes. I've seen the movie, which I think is about 3.10 Right. Yeah. And um, so I saw for a a little over two years ago in uh, like March and April of 2018, I saw 25 of Ingmar Bergman's films in a theater at Film Forum in five weeks. I went to every movie and like I made a spreadsheet and I went to every movie that I hadn't seen. But towards the end of it, I went off to spring break and I didn't get to see Fanny and Alexander. And right at the end of last year, I saw like the serpent's egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw, um, uh, some other of his movies early in, uh, at the very beginning of this year and the end of last year. But Fanny and Alexander is just, it's like, it's probably, I'd give this the random title of like the greatest adaptation of a novel that is an actually original screenplay. It's like this great literary, yeah. <laughs> you know, it feels like a lost Charles Dickens. Yeah, it's like an epic, like War and Peace or something like that. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, it's funny that people call it one of Bergman's most uh, uplifting or yeah. not, quote unquote <laughs> nice. It's a pretty haunting movie and it's yes. still like people being lit on With fire. With a lot of Protestant uh, Northern European severity. 
Right. But it is so I mean, I wouldn't recommend that like this is not a good one to start with uh, Bergman necessarily because it's one of his last films. Yeah. But it's one of his more accessible films, yes. despite the length. It's just so beautifully done. It's I mean, one reason I wanted to watch it, um, even though Christmas had passed, it is a it starts out as a great yeah, Christmas like the first film. hour is a great Christmas film of like 19th century Swedish Christmas customs. <laughs> Right. And it's just beautifully written and acted. And I, I had gotten the previous Christmas, the giant Ingmar Bergman Blu-ray ah. box set. And so uh, I was making my way through Fanny and Alexander. And it's just such a and I, I mean, I can't compare it to the theatrical cut, but I'm like, yeah. hey, we might as well go ahead and binge watch. <laughs> if the... you got to watch it, go big. Yeah, it's like I saw um, scenes from a marriage in theaters at the retrospective, and I saw the whole thing, the uncut, that which is all, I think it's a little less than Fanny and Alexander, but mm-hmm. maybe uh, it's right around the same length. I saw that in a theater. That was a that was a experience seeing that all in I a bet. movie theater. <laughs> right, Your it's one of the films. Sore. Yeah, well, it's one of the films that people I think should watch. To, uh, before they get married or commit to a serious relationship, scenes from a marriage should be like a litmus test. That and Revolutionary Road and the original <laughs> Elaine May version of the Heartbreak Kid. Revolutionary and- Road is so bleak. I think Marriage Story <laughs> might have surpassed that one in terms of realistic performances of marriage. Revolutionary Road might be for if you're getting married in the 1950s in America. <laughs> yeah, and uh, also Blue Valentine. I think is yes. a really yeah. uh, <laughs> depressing movie, but. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I assume you've seen Fanny and Alexander. Have you seen both versions or either no, version? No, I've only ever seen the, the 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 movie version, not the TV right. version. And it's the opposite, actually, of Scenes from a Marriage. Scenes from a Marriage originally aired on Swedish television and then was cut down to a theatrical film and came out the next year. Fanny and Alexander premiered as a film, and then the next year it aired extended on television. Was that just because he had so much like extra footage and he liked the movie so much? Because in a lot of ways it is more, I, I well like I think uh, Wild Strawberries is autobiographical in its own way, and other movies are Pro- probably even like scenes for marriage. But I know that Fanny Alexander is very much based on his like childhood. Do you think he was just very fond of the movie and wanted to like make a longer version, or is it just like do you think he planned to do that? I'm not sure what the history of the release was. If he made it for television and they just originally released it as a film first and then they aired it uncut on television but uh, i know that both that and scenes from a marriage have two different versions and they're both on the criterion collection and those Um, are like the only two that are tv type stuff it's not like uh what was it berlin alexander plots is the one that reina Werner fosbender did uh right well, uh, Bergman did do a number of things later in his career on television, but they were just one version of it. Mm-hmm. But those two are ones where there there's an extended and cut. TV. Right. But uh, yeah, I think that um, yeah, I'm, 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 I think Van Alexander was like technically the last fe- theatrical film he did. Um, uh, Sarah Band might well Sarah Band did play in theaters the one that's a sequel to. Scenes from a marriage, but uh-huh. uh, there was like the last many years of his life, he didn't have any theatrical films come yeah. out. Sort hardly. of like Kurosawa, right? Well, I know he had some. Well, well he I mean, had Kagamusha he... and he had Ran and then Dreams, but that's like three movies over twelve years. While before yeah. that, it was like a movie every year. He had a few more, like Rhapsody and something, and he had a few more. But yeah, but I think he 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 went the last like eight years or so without doing a movie. I think oh, I think he died in '98, and he had one in '90. But I anyway, know he died. Ext- he was like a hundred when he died, wasn't he? Bergman? No, he's a, Bergman. What? Oh well, so Bergman and Michelangelo Anatoni died on the same exact day. Whoa! Yeah, I didn't know that. Right. But um, two absolute and, uh, revolutionaries there. And this is really random, but Ozu died on his birthday. I know that random really? information, like but yeah. And uh, today they were recording this. William uh, Shakespeare uh, yes, supposedly April 26th. died. Yeah. Well, this right. is his birthday. Yeah, and Which he died was on probably, his birthday. It was, it was probably like March fifteenth or something. It was probably the yeah, March. But well, I, I was I was going to say too that this. Um, so you're saying that scenes from a marriage might be autobiographical. Ingmar Bergman was married to Ingrid Bergman, just not the actress Ingrid Bergman. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, uh, he he was mar- one of his wives was named Ingrid Bergman, and she uh, Ingrid Bergman, the actress from Casablanca, she died yeah. on her birthday too. Oh. so it comes full circle. And uh, I was just saying, much I, more I, common than you would figure. Yeah, I watched uh, another really long one. I won't talk about it in detail, but um, 
at the end of last year, I watched Autumn Sonata for the first time. And then uh, they also have um, on IMDb, at least it's credited that just Bergman directed this like three and a half hour, three hour and 20 minute making of documentary that is just watching three hours and plus of the behind the scenes of making that movie, which I was like, I have nothing better to do. I'm stuck, (laughs) you know, I'm stuck in Arkansas. So I watched that, but I highly recommend Fanny and Alexander. It's one of the greatest films ever made quote unquote films. I watched the TV version technically, but uh, it's a wonderful piece. It's one of his best films and it's gorgeous. It's it's it's, uh, it would be high on my list of most gorgeous films ever made the best looking movies ever made. So to go from Marriage Story, which I mentioned, uh, to a movie where two songs from Marriage Story are from this original Broadway performance, original cast album company, is a Netflix DVD movie I watched recently, which is a documentary by D.A. Pennebaker, one of the great documentarians of all time, about the Broadway production of Company, a Stephen Sondheim music from movie from, or sorry, musical from 1970 in which they record the definitive cast album version over a single night in a new york city studio and you have the uh, producer of the uh recorded version and also sondheim there and you have all these broadway performers singing their version of the songs the two that were used in marriage story are you could drive a person crazy and being alive do you remember those performances from marriage story yes have you seen this movie original cast album company no, I did get to see D.A. Penny Baker in person. Uh, He's before still he alive, died. isn't he? Oh, he died no. recently, like a very right. old age, though. He was right. like yeah. 98. In his, yeah, he was in his 90s. Yeah, I saw him at a screening of Monterey Pop, and yes. I love, especially Don't Look Back, because yes. I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. I saw that actually for the first time uh, last year, I think. But um, yeah, I, I've uh, I've not seen that. It's it, it, you're not exactly like a big theater or musical person, but did you find it compelling? Oh yeah, I mean just because uh, just like the perfectionism depicted in it. D. A. Pennebaker is one of the great cinema verite, fly on the wall documentarians. Where at some point, I'm sort of like shocked that it's just like a video camera recording all these people and they behave as naturally as they would without it there. I don't know what he does. He, like, puts on an invisibility cloak or something. But uh, it's just very, very – because you hear, like, a the just the sheer amount of times they're forced to redo song after song because Sondheim is there personally. He's like, oh, you're doing an A-flat when you should be doing an E. And this has been changing over the whole course of the production, but I'm just noticing it now. And I want for the definitive cast album for it to be perfect. I'm going to have you do it the way I want it. And then the like record producer who's like, oh, someone was making a noise in the background. We're going to have to go again. And all of these Broadway performers, like the way they do it on like when they're performing it live, like they go for everyone. And afterwards, you're like, that was really good. And then you hear Sondheim go, no, 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 we're going to have to do it again. You didn't do it the way I wanted to do it. And they end up going to like four in the morning and like the great scene from it is this woman who's sort of been like a supporting singer the whole time. You can sort of tell that she's like a a Broadway veteran and when they finally do her solo song at the end it's like four in the morning and she's been smoking cigarettes the whole night and like she's trying to do it at the correct octave in the performance and sometimes like your voice just isn't gonna do it you're gonna have to do it an octave lower and she starts singing like trying harder and that's just making her voice sound worse and worse and eventually he's like we're getting diminishing returns here we're just gonna stop and then they like uh, cut to a few days later and she does a performance on like a few days rest and it's like first time perfect <laughs> we're gonna print that so it's like i don't know it's one i really really recommend because if you haven't if you aren't familiar with the a pinnabaker's work he's one of the great documentarians of all time especially in regards to music like as jonathan mentioned don't look back and uh monterey pop are like two of the great one a concert the other more of like uh Almost a music behind video. How would you describe Don't Look Back? I guess it's behind it's, the scenes. Yeah, it's very much it, – it's a great – for people who love Dylan and people that don't like him also because he's kind of a dick in it in some ways. <laughs> yes. And uh, But I, I – what is the title of the documentary you saw? Original Cast Album Company. Okay. Um, I was just going to say that I, I'm going to – well, I, I was uh, on um, – 
Fresh Air, Terry Gross, they reposted an interview with Stephen Sondheim yes. uh, when he turned 80 because he turned 90 a few uh, weeks ago. Wow. And it was really he's really intelligent. And just she yes. asked some really great questions about, you know, how he comes up with his lyrics and what he thinks of music. So yeah. uh, it would be good to listen to that uh, oh, get, yeah. along with watching the documentary. Because, I mean, he yeah. comes across very mysterious in the documentary Uh you're like what's this guy about he seems very very smart but he's it's surprising to be still alive because he's like change smoking the whole movie but you know yeah (laughs) well i will connect uh a film about music with one i watched early in the year that i found really um a really moving film very tragic movie is uh the 2007 biopic control about about uh ian curtis from joy Joy Division. division Right. And I don't know music like at all. Uh, I'm embarrassed how much I don't know music. And I knew virtually nothing about Ian Curtis or Joy Division. But it's this evocative black and white biopic uh, that Anton Corban is the director. Right. Who directed a film I really liked called The American with George Clooney. I thought that (laughs) was underrated. He had previously done like uh, photography sessions for bands and stuff like that. He's really well known for his black and white photography of U2. But I think this might have been his first movie. Yeah, and he uh, in the movie stars Sam Riley as Ian Curtis and uh, Samantha Morton, who's one of my favorite actresses, playing his wife. Yes. And he committed suicide at 23. And the day before just... they were about to go on a tour to the USA. Yeah, it's just uh, it's a good example of like you don't have to know anything about him or have a connection to the music. I'm sure it would even, you know, uh, increase your appreciation of the film. But I just found it beautifully uh, filmed and just the performances are it's one of those biopics where it feels so lived in and real. It doesn't feel manufactured to tell a story. I mean, one of the kind of tragic um things about it is that it's not one of these you know cradle to grave films he only lived to be 23 so it really focuses on just a brief period yeah, like of two time. or three years right uh but i just uh i would say this is one of the better you know it, it's certainly better than uh bohemian rhapsody or <laughs> yes. you know something like that it's like the opposite of it in like every way it's like very it's black and white it's very realistic yes. and you really get a sense of I mean, it's one of those interesting films where you really get the sense of someone who's pretty enigmatic. Yes. And that's what's interesting. It's like it even does to a the people good, who are supposed to know him best. Right. Yeah. It does a good job of capturing very realistically. Uh, and like you get you feel like you really know that he's enigmatic. Yes. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's I mean, it's one of the better musical biopics. And for I. I feel like in so many ways, something like Bohemian Rhapsody is sort of unnecessary in that we already know so much about Freddie Mercury and there's so much archive footage of Freddie Mercury that the movie version of his life was sort of just playing the hits. And Ann Curtis of Joy Division is a person that a lot of even like music fans aren't familiar with his life or even his work. And so it is really, really revealing to see. I think a lot more people are familiar with New Order. Uh, which is the band that sort of formed from the remnants of Joy Division of the three remaining living members of Joy Division formed the band after Ian Curtis committed suicide and in a lot of ways became a more successful band than Joy Division ever was and a a band that I probably like more than Joy Division, to be honest, New Order. But Joy Division is an extremely influential group in terms of uh, like bands like Interpol and stuff like that are very much influenced by them and very... They sound contemporary even today if you listen to their work from like the 70s. And just because it's a very under-listened to, underappreciated corner of music history, it's it's really brings it to attention uh, in Curtis and Joy Division in a way that Bohemian Rhapsody, everybody already knew Queen and Freddie Mercury, that it, it feels like a worthwhile depiction of an artist's life and not just like a Wikipedia page come to life like Bohemian Rhapsody did. And I'll just add that also it's a really evocative look at that time period yes. and that and that the club life. scene and everything right. like that and how a, a band had to play all these club shows instead of you know just making a song on YouTube like a band would today to get signed. You had to like really play in a lot of clubs and hope to get noticed. It is a really uh, cool depiction of a, a time period as well, Britain in the 70s, which was a very sort of bleak period with the uh, pre-thaturated, uh, a lot of uh, labor strikes and stuff like that. Not the happiest of periods of British history. 
No, if you want to see a certainly more comic and uh, um, kind of <laughs> a film that's in color, uh, 24-Hour Party People yes. would be an interesting double feature yes. with that. About very that... much the same period and I think might include some of the same characters. Right, yeah, it definitely does. That's with but, Steve uh, Coogan, I think, right? Right, Mike, yeah, Michael Winterbottom film, yeah. So I, I, I highly recommend, even as someone that didn't know much about the band or the actual person, Control, from 2007, I uh, highly recommend it. So I don't have any good transitions here, but... Well, um, I transitioned from your previous one, so... <laughs> I know. So uh, a movie that I had really wanted to see for a very long time... Uh, we've mentioned before our like Netflix DVD queue and the saved section were movies that you would like to see that aren't available or out of print for some reason Netflix can't access. This movie aired on TCM and as soon as I saw it on the schedule I was like, hell yes, I'm going to record this, I'm going to watch this. It is The Dresser from 1983 uh, directed by Peter Yates who also did movies like Bullet from 1968. Are you familiar with uh, Breaking Away also? How familiar are you with Peter Yates, Jonathan? I've seen Bullet. Yeah. This one is quite different from Bullet. <laughs> Whereas Bullet is the American movie with a great car chase. The dresser is about a Victorian era actor and his dresser performing a uh, performance of King Lear in a small Midlands town in England. And the process that the dresser must get the lead actor through to get him on stage and then sort of helping him uh, motivate himself while he's on stage. This was part of a great uh, Albert Finney phase I went through over the past few months where I just wanted to watch as many Albert Finney movies as I possibly could because he's one of my favorite actors and I feel like I I hadn't watched as many movies by him as I should have. This is also starring... uh, Tom Courtney. Tom Courtney, yes, who's from The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, and Billy Liar, two of my favorite British movies from the 60s, who didn't quite have the career that uh, he probably should have had. He sort of had a little renaissance a few years ago with, was it 50 Years was the name of the movie? 45 Years. 45 Years, that's right, yeah. Um, But The Dresser is, if, if you like Shakespeare, this being Shakespeare's birthday, a perfect day to honor him, this is like one of the great movies about the theater and actors and theatrical performances and the importance of Shakespeare to uh, just the theater in general and to actors in particular. And I don't know if there's anyone in the history of movies who's been better at playing old men while he himself is not old than Albert Finney. It's like it, it makes me think of him in Murder on the Orient Express when he's like 35 but playing a fat 50-year-old Belgian man. And in this one, he's like early 40s but playing a really old a fat Victorian actor. So Albert Finney, for me, one of the great actors ever. I'm I'm guessing you haven't seen this, but I, what do you think about Albert Finney in general? I have seen him in some films, but there are a number of his biggest films that I have not seen. Um, I, there's one that has it's called Under the Volcano. Yes, where he plays which is an another alcoholic. one I was going to talk about. <laughs> okay, um, I was going to say that Ronald Harwood uh, wrote. Uh, the dresser based on his own play and he was the writer of the pianist and diving ball and the butterfly um but uh what just off the top of my head um we mentioned in the last episode uh before the devil knows you're dead is one of uh albert finney's albert finney right he uh, was in probably a lot of americans know him for being an aaron brockovich got uh, nominated for that but um yeah a couple years later Right. So um, I think that there's a number of films I've probably seen of his and I'd be like, oh, yeah, he was in that. Um, but yeah, he we lost him uh, about a year or so ago. Did you know year. he was originally going to be Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia? Oh, really? Yeah. There's yeah. even pictures of him wearing the like uh, Lawrence of Arabia outfit, but they replaced him with Peter O'Toole, I think, like a couple weeks into the production. I would have oh, yeah. been interested to see what it would have been like. I think it would have been a little bit different. Well, can I make a connection with that one now? Oh, yeah. Okay, so talking about replacing an actor, I just watched uh, – well, I rewatched Apocalypse Now, but I watched for the first time Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse, which is the 1991 documentary about the crazy production of Apocalypse Now. And the connection is that Harvey Keitel had been cast in the lead role and really? he – and they had actually started filming it and and they got a few days into production and they decided it wasn't working and so they quickly got Martin Sheen in. Wow. 
You didn't I know didn't that? I didn't know that. No, it's hard to even yeah. imagine someone besides Martin Sheen playing right. that central role. What is it? Willard is his name, right? Willard, right. And um, it's, I mean, just a few of the things that happened to Typhoon. Hit, <laughs> I, I know and... he had a heart attack, Martin Sheen, and had to like oh, yeah. crawl 10 miles to the nearest hospital or something like that. Yeah, and they, he said in the documentary that it was one of those moments where he said that if he wanted to die, he could have. And if like, it, it was <laughs> oh, like, it, it's like one of those, you know, when they talk about older people, like if they want to hang on, they will. And if yeah. they want to die, they can go on. He said, like, I, I was at that precipice. Wow. Like, I, I was that serious, a heart attack. And the, the, like I said, a typhoon hit and they had to go back like a year later. And I mean, the film uh, has Larry Fishburne, Lawrence Fishburne, Mm -hmm. and he was only 14 when he shot (laughs) it. Yeah, it's insane. He lied about his age, right? Right. And it took so long to make the film, by the time it premiered three years later, he actually was 17. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and Brando showed up on set very overweight, and he had not even read the uh, Joseph Conrad story, uh, Heart of Darkness, that it's based on. Which is like 50 pages. (laughs) I know. It's a novella, and he was completely unprepared. There's a great clip in the documentary, and you can just look up the clip on YouTube, where he's trying to be very serious, and then all of a sudden he makes this grimace, and he goes, I swallowed a bug. Oh, I have (laughs) seen that. Yeah. That's in the documentary? Yeah. Oh, that's And uh, what's also interesting is uh, um, Eleanor Coppola shot the documentary footage, and you get to see, like, really, really young Sophia and Roman Coppola, like, splashing about in the water in the typhoon and uh you get to see uh you know jack nicholson in the background at a party and you get to see dennis hopper just being totally you know drugged out on <laughs> in the his, set of in the his movie. lost years <laughs> right it's one of the it, it's like a good companion piece of that film would be burden of dreams the the less blank documentary about the making of Werner herzog's Fitzcarraldo, both mm. insane productions set in the jungle uh, and uh, but Heart, Hearts of Darkness, it's one of the better movies that came out the year I was born. We could do an episode of like the best films that came out the year we were born. I was born in '91, so Barton Fink uh, is another one. But um, I I highly recommend. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it if you haven't seen Apocalypse yeah. Now. But uh, in that case, I recommend Apocalypse Now. <laughs> right. Um, uh, and I have uh, not seen the final cut, the one, the third yes. version of the Which film. Which came that, out, what, last year or something like that? Right. Yeah. He also did The Cotton Club, uh, did a re- massive recut of that. Um, but uh, Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, uh, is a film I recommend, a good documentary about the making of a film. Yeah, that's sort of one of the, like the notorious over-budget, over-long productions in history, right? Well, I, yeah, I'm teaching a class on great film directors of New Hollywood, and people point to the two big movies, uh, Apocalypse Now and especially Heaven's Gate. <laughs> Which but, is not good at all. At least Apocalypse Now is a good yeah. movie. Right, and, and it did well at the box office, yeah. and it, it won the Palm d'Or at Cannes and got a bunch of Oscar nominations. Uh, but it was kind of the end yeah. of the era. I but mean, that, it, yeah. it, that was when studios sort of just wrote blank checks, or not blank checks, but were much more willing to be uh, flexible with the shooting schedule and stuff like that for big name directors. And prestige was a big part of it. And we got a real overcorrection in the eighties. A lot of studio control retook. Heaven's Gate yeah. is, is the big one to blame that bankrupted United artists. Have you seen Heaven's Gate? No, that's I saw it in, that... at the Brooklyn Academy of music. They had like a John Simino retrospective and I saw it there. Michael, it's, Michael Simino. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Chimino, My- Michael Chimino movie. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm a big fan of the deer hunter and uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, but it's really, really bad. And a lot of good yeah. actors in it too. Like Christopher Walken's in it. And John Hurt makes a really good, uh, interesting performance at the beginning of it. Uh, the first 10 minutes are the best part of the movie. I'll say that much. Yeah, and doesn't, I think um, Willem Dafoe and Isabel Hubert pop up in Isabel it Isabel Hubert's in like yeah. a decent amount of it, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, Willem, I think it was one of Willem Dafoe's first films. I can't even remember him in the movie, so I did mean, he might have been. Yeah. Did you see the director's cut? I don't remember which one they showed, but either way, I've heard it was like. I've heard, yeah, I've heard people, def- so I've heard defenders of the director's cut saying it's a, like. It's, if it's, it's longer, then it's indefensible. <laughs> But there are films that it's completely oh yeah adds yeah. to it like like there there are films that should either be two hours or they should be eight hours like a miniseries well, that's like, true. It, like 
Like they're they're too. That's the problem with long movies sometimes is that if it's three and a half or four hours, it's like it's still not long enough. But it's when it worked, you know. But anyway, that one just uh, sort of another? seems like one word. He he doesn't know where he's going with it. But we could yeah. leave our uh, Heaven Gate review for. Yeah, maybe, I've never seen. Maybe it, yeah. when you see it for the first time, we can talk about it. Uh, right. The next one I will do is a movie I saw on. I can't remember where. I think it was on TV. On one of the movie channels, a Jonathan Dim movie, who I'm Demi, Demi, which I was most from most familiar with Philadelphia and Silence of the Lambs, or is two really big uh, Oscar-winning movies of the '90s. I think they both they might not have both won Best Picture, but I know that Tom Hanks won Best Actor for Philadelphia. Did Philadelphia win Best Picture? No, but Silence of the Lambs. Yes, yeah, Silence of the Lambs did. It won the five big categories. Yeah, right. Right, and and um, it, it, they came out very close to each other. They, he did them back to back, the back to back narrative films. Yes, and I also was familiar with uh, his Talking Heads documentary, "Stop Making Sense," which I think is one of the best music documentaries ever made. But one of his more sort of generic comedy movies I saw for the first time, "Married to the Mob." Have you ever seen that? Yeah, I actually went to see a number of films at uh, the Brooklyn Academy of Music uh, after he passed away, and I saw some of the screenings with Paul Thomas Anderson in person. Ah. Um, and I saw, uh, I didn't, I don't think I saw Anderson at that film, but I saw Married to the Mob. I, I know I saw Something Wild yes. with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. I had seen that before, Which but which is a um, much darker movie than Married to the Mob. Well, well, it, that's a really interesting because it, it starts out as like this kind of zany a screwball comedy and it turns <laughs> yeah. into a thriller and yeah. like almost as intense as Silence of the Lambs. But yeah, I was thinking about it. Mary to the mob might be like my favorite Michelle Pfeiffer performance. The only other two that like come close to it for me are her sort of uh, period drama performances in the age of innocence and dangerous liaisons where she's very much the uh, society type in 19th century, either Europe or America. And in Mary to the mob, she's really, really funny. And it's also a side of Matthew Modine that I had never seen before, where he's, like, surprisingly okay as a leaning man. I, I, you know, everyone knows him from Full Metal Jacket. And then I'd also seen him in uh, what's one of the biggest box office bombs ever, Cutthroat Island. And uh, But he was actually surprisingly good as a leading man. And then Dean Stockwell, who I mostly know from his very strange cameo in Blue Velvet, but apparently it was like a big child actor, which I did not know about at all. Yeah, there are a lot of people that pop up in that movie, like Al Lewis. Alec Baldwin's uh, in it. Yeah, Todd Solons has a brief cameo as a reporter. And oh, yeah, sure. it's a really yeah, it's a really charming movie. It's just like it's one of those kind of goofy comedies, yes. but it, it, the characters are so well drawn that you you know, it's it's it is a farce pretty much. <laughs> yes. And there's not too much real threat even yes. though it is about gangsters it's just a it's a really fun movie um, what I, yeah, this I, is sort of what jonathan demi was known for before he did silence of the lambs was sort of comedies and sort of unexpected areas like uh he did something well, wild something <laughs> wild yeah but there are some other ones right maybe i'm thinking of my blue heaven is that not him no he did melvin and howard which That's uh, it, yeah and then swing shift with uh goldie hawn and right. uh, kurt russell Right. And uh, he was one of the main directors that came out. Well, there are many, but he's one of them that came out of Roger Corman, you know, Mm -hmm. started making, you know, women in prison films. I actually got to see Jonathan Demme um, at a screening at the Nighthawk of his very first film, uh, Caged Heat, which Ah. is a women in prison film with Barbara Steele. And the print was awful. It was like, (laughs) really? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was like someone had left it out in the sun for a few years, but um, oh, it was just really cool getting to see him talk. And uh, it was like D.A. Pennebaker, uh, I've seen Jonathan Demme in person, and they've both passed away. So mm-hmm. I'm always like to, you know, and he wasn't super old. He was only in his 70s. Yeah, uh, and they'd but, only, uh, had made Ricky in the Flesh a few years prior, which was right. not one of his best movies. But no. Rachel Getting Married, I think, is a lot of people would say it was like his last great movie. Yeah, that's a wonderful film. Uh, but yeah, written by, written by Sidney Lumet's daughter. Rachel Getting Married? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I highly recommend uh, catching up with Demi's earlier films before yes. he did Silence of the Lambs. I There's think some Something really good... Wild is a better movie than Married to the Mob, but I think Married oh, to yeah. the Mob is a little more accessible. 
Right. And Melvin and Howard's really good. Uh, Mary Steenburgen won uh, Best Supporting Actress. And um, what's the actor? Jason, Jason Robards, Robards was nominated. Plays, uh, Howard Hughes, yeah. Playing Howard Hughes. Right, right. That's a quirky, nice little movie. Um, yes. But let's see. Do I have a quirky, nice little movie to connect that with? Uh, hmm. What movie do I want to talk about? Okay. Let's uh, – can I cheat and do like the weirdest double feature ever? <laughs> you can do this. Okay. So um, I had my friend Luke come over and we watched Preston Sturge's The Great Moment and Dario Argento's Inferno, <laughs> which is like totally – have nothing to do with each other at all. So uh, my friend and I had been going through watching all of Preston Sturge's films as a director in order. And I had seen all of his movies up to that point uh, already, but I was rewatching with my friend. I love Sullivan's Travels and The Lady Eve and the, my personal favorites, The Miracle Morgan's Creek. And the great, movement, the great Moment is one of those films where the studio really took it out of his hands. Um, it's very disjointed. It starts out as this kind of citizen kane flashback and it's like wait where are we flashing back from and it just feels really off for about the first 15 20 minutes and but there are some really fun and funny sequences but the main issue was that sturges was trying to make a more serious film hmm. and he was doing a film about the man who vented anesthesia Really? And it stars uh, Joel McRae, who was star of uh, his film uh, Sun- uh, Sullivan's Travels. And it's it has a lot of his, you know, usual troupe of actors like William Demarest. And, and it's it, it, it doesn't work entirely. It's it is kind of a misfire in some ways, but it's interesting to see the good moments shine through the studio interfering with the movie. So I definitely don't recommend if people have never seen a Preston Sturges film to start with this one, but it's one of the interesting films to look at to see how a studio interfered with a movie, but you can still see the, the, the original creation like peeping through it. But well, this um, is coming I, right after his like really uh, peak period with the Lady Eve and Sullivan's Travels and Palm Beach Story and I Married a Witch. So I guess well, people no, were expecting a little. Oh, he was a producer for that one. I okay. guess it was a little more of wanting uh, his sort of classic comedy style. Right. Yeah. This they kind of re-edited the movie to make it more overtly funny. But um, that and then like I said, this is no connection. But I just happened to watch them back to back with my friend. I watched Dario Argento's nineteen eighty film Inferno, which like a lot of Argento's films, like doesn't really make much sense logically. <laughs> but it is such a thundering like operatic display of cinema. It's just so colorful and violent and vibrant and i just i was like truly enraptured by it i it, 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 i it, i don't know that it's a movie that would repeat you know do so well on repeated viewings but seeing it for the first time um and i is one of those directors i've only seen his first x number of films uh horror films in a row i'd seen deep red and suspiria and so i was just watching the next one in order and mm-hmm. inferno is just it, it it's just gloriously gory and you know operatic i just i i thoroughly enjoyed it even though i admit that it doesn't like most and it's not even a criticism really it just it doesn't really make a lick of sense <laughs> no. even suspiria which is considered like his great movie like even like the <laughs> geography of the building they're in doesn't make a lot of sense like, like rooms and, <laughs> like, like why is there other room? rooms and like why is there just like a room with a giant pit of barbed wire yeah <laughs> it's like no it's like yeah. dream logic is what you get in dario Argento movies right uh so uh is this should, as like... bold and its use of color as uh suspiria is I mean, it's up there. Yeah, it's it definitely just it just has these. It's basically a bunch of set pieces strung together. And it it's just so you just are watching it and you do your heart races. And it's I mean, his I never found his movies scary. I mean, but they're just um, they're ghoulish and they're they're so compelling on a cinematic level that you just get so swept up into them the 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 majesty of its bonkers quality you know the violence in his movies sort of reminds me of uh the violence in tarantino movies where it's like a little bit like cartoonishly exaggerated 
Oh yeah, yeah, certainly. But uh, yeah, so uh, I, I I don't recommend starting with the Great Moment if you've never seen a Preston Surge's film. I I recommend highly uh, Sullivan's Travels, The Lady Eve, which just got announced that it was going to be released on Blu-ray in the Criterion Collection. And my personal favorite is The Miracle Morgan's Creek, mm. which is uh, not uh, on Blu-ray yet. I wish they would release it sometime, but. Uh, I did see the great moment from 1944, and I saw. I do highly recommend uh, Dario Argento's Inferno. So I, I will jump off of that to use a movie that doesn't necessarily work all the way and has good constituent elements, but doesn't quite feel as good on a whole as it should have. Is The Chase from 1966, directed by Arthur Penn? I watched that through the mail on Netflix. Arthur Penn, I would think most people are familiar with him as the director of Bonnie and Clyde and maybe uh, Miracle Worker <laughs> Miracle Worker from 1962, very different than Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, and also Night Moves, one of the great 70s Gene Hackman movies. But The Chase is one I like read its Wikipedia page and was like Arthur Penn directing, starring Marlon Brando, Jane Fonda, Robert Redford, uh, Angie Dickinson, uh robert duvall james fox i was like holy shit this is gonna be incredible and then i watched the movie and it's just like a totally disjointed narrative where they don't make use of brando nearly enough and he's giving this sort of weird performance as a texan uh police marshal or uh sheriff and i don't know it's good to watch movies every once in a while that aren't necessarily great reminding you how difficult it is to make a truly great movie even one where you feel like all the elements of it should make something great the chase is just a movie that did not work at all have, have you i'm guessing you haven't seen this have you heard about the chase no i've heard of it but i haven't seen i it's one of those uh 60s brando films yes. i haven't seen you know but but between uh, streetcar and on the waterfront and the Godfather, like between yes, you know exactly. his early stuff and when he came back with the well, and also like I, I think of like you have on the waterfront and streetcar, and then you have like Last Tango and Godfather, like there's yeah. those kind of groupings. In the meantime, but, he was making like uh, One Eyed Jacks and Mutiny on the Bounty and stuff like that, which don't necessarily Petula, work. right? <laughs> yeah. What, what what is that movie called? There's some, there's some like weird hippie movie he did. Oh, well, he did called, a lot. There's Reflections Candy, not candy? candy. Yeah, Candy. I think yeah, that's yeah. what it is. But yeah, this one, and even though it it doesn't all work all the way, you get some really nice moments of it, some great Robert Duvall. He's like one of the truly great character actors. I mean, I can't even think of too many movies where he's like the lead performer, like the great Santini, stuff Uh, like that. I highly recommend The Apostle. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. He's the lead actor in that one. Oh, yeah. He got nominated. It was a crazy year at the Oscars. It was like Jack Nicholson was nominated for As Good As It Gets. Uh, oh, so this is from the uh, 90s. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's uh, and he directed it, too. Oh. Um, but it's – yeah, the, that year it was like the best actor race. It was like Robert Duvall for The Apostle, Peter Fonda for Yuli's Gold, yeah. Jack Nicholson for As Good As It Gets, uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman for Wag the Dog, and uh, Matt Damon for Goodwill Hunting. I think oh, that's wow. where the fact. But uh, and I remember when Jack Nicholson won, he was he got up on stage and he was like, "I'd like to thank my old bike buddy Fonda." You know, <laughs> uh, but um, and uh, Nicholson just turned eighty three a few days ago. Yeah. But I was going to say I, I recently uh, for my great directors class in New Hollywood, I rewatched in the last few weeks both Network and Apocalypse Now, and I yes. concur that Robert Duvall is one of our great uh, living actors. And uh, he's just like, I don't know, he just adds, like, especially a network. Like, every scene he's in just feels like it's much more significant than it would with a lesser actor in it. I, I mean, even in, like, the conversation stuff like that, where he's not necessarily, like, a huge part of it, it just adds a gravitas to a movie when he's in it. So, And even 1966, he's, like, 30 years old. He seems like he's, like, 45. The only time he seemed young in a movie is in uh, <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird, and he's, like, barely in that. Right, he shows up at the very end. <laughs> and but, it's like, uh, oh, young Robert Duvall. So do you recommend people watch The Chase, or is it really not worth it? I, If you are someone who likes getting a nice gauge on a director's filmography, like I wanted to do with Arthur Penn, I think it's important to sort of watch this as the transition between like a miracle worker stage Arthur Penn and Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Little Big Man sort of era Arthur Penn, where he's just like totally <laughs> wilding out on his cinematic technique. Because... Uh, a lot of the scenes with Rob Redford are really, really good. It's just, it's one of those movies that, like, 
sort of like traffic or something like that where they try to have a ton of characters and while something like traffic executes it the chase tries to have so many characters that every one of them is underdeveloped so if it had been like a tv show it would have worked a lot better but uh i i'd recommend it it's worth seeing just because it's got brando and robert redford and it is an arthur pen but it, it just didn't work as well as i wanted it to work yeah. Well, uh, one movie I watched uh, earlier this month that I had never seen, and it's the only film by this director. I saw Barbara Loden's Wanda. Um, she is Eli Kazan's wife, and she was born in North Carolina and died uh, at only 48. And this was only the, the only feature film she directed, and she also wrote it and starred in it. It came out 50. 50- years ago 1970 and it's this really low budget shot on 16 millimeter uh and i found it really incredible it's about this woman who is quite unlikable in some ways she is a bad mother she doesn't she's not there for her husband and her kids she shows up late to her court appearance and she's like yeah i shouldn't take care of these kids yeah uh, she's just uh and she wanders into a bar that's being robbed and the bartender's tied up on the floor and she asks for a drink from the guy who's robbing the place and she just ends up getting swept up into his petty life of crime because she doesn't really have anything better to do and it's it's one of those films kind of like the death of mr lazarus where it's it's quote unquote boring and nothing really happens but it builds up all these scenes of nothing really happening and then it just it becomes really uh, you're really enriched by the experience of watching someone's life unfold in very naturalistic ways mm-hmm. And I just found it really moving and it's just it's just so it, it looks like almost like a D.A. Pennebaker or Maisel Brothers film. It's just this it's a great looking at 50 years ago, the the way people dressed mm-hmm. and the stores and just the attitudes towards women. And, yeah, it's in the Criterion Collection. They did a restoration of the film a few years ago. And um, it's just a it's if I had seen it, I probably would have shown it my uh, female director's class that I taught last semester, and I'd probably teach it next time I do that class. So I, uh, Wanda from 1970, the only feature film by Barbara Loden, really, really recommend it. Yeah, the only thing I know her from is the Elliot Kazan movie Splendor in the Grass, which is one of, uh, what's his name? <laughs> uh, Natalie Wood's in it, but also uh, bail me out here. William Holden? No, no, no. Uh, the star of it. Isn't William Holden in it? No, no, no. I I think you're thinking of uh. Oh Picnic. my goodness. What am I? Well, yeah. What, who's? But uh, I know that um she had acted in uh, a few films. But Warren Beatty. Is... Okay, right. Yeah. yeah, that was that's I... like a classic TCM movie for me. Splinter of the Grass. There's no way I ever would have watched that if it wasn't airing on TCM. That's a good movie, and she's like really, really good in it. And I looked up after I saw that Barbara Loden. I was like, I really haven't seen her in anything else. So I knew she starred in Wanda. I didn't realize that she also directed it. Wrote, in, wrote directed, and starred in it. And wow. um, I'm not sure if this is true, but I'm thinking that that it might have been the first film in film history that uh, the, the same one woman wrote, directed, and starred in a film. I mean, I can't think of any other yeah, feature film. It wouldn't be shocking if that was the first. Right. But um, do you have any films directed by women that you could talk about or some <laughs> no. connection, one that came out uh, 50 years ago? Or... Oh, I can't do one from 1967. We'll do one more for me and then one more for you. Okay. This was a recent movie I had recorded on TCM and watched, uh, which I had also – it was always been one of those sort of like 500 movies to see before you die, 1,000 movies to see before you die. And it, uh, I knew it mostly from actually it's a poster in the background of Mean Streets in the part where they go to the movie theater. It's Point Blank, directed by John Borman. Have you ever seen that? No, I was just going to say 67 is the year starting. People consider the start of New Hollywood because you have yeah. both The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde come out. So, yeah, like I've heard a, it's great. Yeah, it was very much like a new wave kind of uh, like jump cuts and different non-traditional storytelling elements but also like sort of classic film noir narrative and uh it was just a great great mix of sort of the 50s style film noir and then the stuff you'd see in the 60s with uh, the post sort of french new wave style films and some of the scenes were just like so like different than anything else i'd seen there's like one interrogation where he's 
uh, talking to a woman or he he literally doesn't say anything. He's just like sitting next to her and she feels so guilty that she's just like pouring her soul out and all he has to do is just sit next to her and be sort of menacing Lee Marvin. But yeah, it stars Lee Marvin directed by John Borman who I had heard about as like one of the sort of great uh, Deliverance. directors. Deliverance is his big movie. And Still Helen, alive. Is he really? Yeah, yeah, he's still in he's in his eighties. And then uh, Hell in the Pacific, which is uh, also um, Lee Marvin and Tashira Mifun, was also one of those sort of five hundred movies to see before he die type movies. So I I had heard that his movies were really really uh, good and so, also so has uh, Angie Dickinson. Yeah, Angie Dickinson plays the sister of his ex wife in the movie. Carol O'Connor, who most people know from was it All in the Family, right? Uh, John Vernon and Keenan Wynn. Yeah, it's a lot of that, guys. And it's it's a really good sort of 60s period piece. And uh, just take some turns that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a movie like this. And also I was expecting a lot more action. And a lot of it is just like mood and Lee Marvin like sort of doing mood 60s stuff. But yeah, I recommend this really, really highly. It's I, Is I really, it kind of like – is it like bullet kind of – Kind of. It's Bullet is, is even a little more sort of straightforward than Point Blank is. Like, I don't know if it's too much of a spoiler to say that, like, uh, the first thing you see is, like, uh, I mean, like, the first ten minutes of it, you're like, what is going on? It's, like, completely disorienting. Lee Marvin is, like, uh, double-crossed by one of his friends, and the rest of the movie is him sort of trying to take vengeance on uh, the friend who wronged him. And there's all sort of weird stuff like them in like a crowded room and him in like a prison. So to a, some people, like the whole movie is a a dream and the like last moments of a dying man. That's not exactly how I saw the movie, but it is like kind of hallucinatory in some of the way it's made. So I could understand why some people would think that. But it was a movie where I had heard about it and I had seen the poster for it in Mean Streets, but I didn't really know what it would look like or what like the narrative would be like. And I was... I was very, very impressed, not knowing too much about it before I saw the movie. Yeah, it's one I definitely wanted to see. I always have to stop and remember now, Catherine Bickelow directed Point Break, and that one's Point Blank, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. And then there's another film that has the same title that has no connection to it that came out about 10 years ago, mm. Point Blake. Uh, that's also a very good movie. It came out in... Uh, 2010 uh that's just a nifty little 81 minute french thriller but anyway um i'm gonna also kind of cheat i did two movies but i'm gonna end with a trilogy <laughs> uh but i'll just talk about it as one i watched for the first time uh satajit rai's apu trilogy and i had never seen any of the films i had never seen any of his movies and honestly off the top of my head the only indian film i can think of that i had seen ever before was a movie from a few years ago called the lunchbox hmm. i had never seen a bollywood film before i had never seen um uh one of mira nair's indian films uh but the pather panchali um which is and- the first one yeah, I taught that in both of my international film classes, and I actually think the third one might be my favorite. Really? It's uh, called The World of Apu is the third one, but you should watch all three of them. One it's of them is like just... The Big City or something like that. Is that right? That's another film okay. of his a little bit later, but um, I, I don't know how to pronounce I might be mispronouncing it, but I think it's Pather Panchali. Pather Panchali is how I've yeah. always read it. Um, and then, th- so the films, it's not one of those, it's like a thematic trilogy. It actually follows mm-hmm. Apu, uh, so you should watch them in order, but it, they're so beautiful and moving and deeply, deeply humane. And they're these slice of life, neorealist films. Yeah. I mean, he talked about, uh, Rai talked about, he watched Bicycle Thieves and he uh. said, I want to make the movie like this. He said, I want to make it when, you know, with, uh, natural From experience lighting. that he knows about in India. Right. And it is based on a novel. Um, And I think the first one or all of them. Well, the first it's like taken from parts of the novel. Uh, You know, it's like he kind of goes the first hundred pages or something like that is the first movie. Right. And the the film series, the trilogy is just it's one of the greatest film trilogies of all time. And the third one, I don't ever cry in films, hardly ever or in real life. And I didn't actually produce tears, but there were two parts in the third film, The World of Apu, that I really came close to crying. It's just so beautiful and it has the music of Ravi Sh- Ravi Shankar mm-hmm. and it's just so 
I, I can't speak highly enough of it. It's just one of those classic in international films that I had never seen. I had never seen any of Rise films, and I highly recommend all three of them. They're on the Criterion channel. They're on Blu-ray and DVD. Um, they're easy to access. They're, if anyone has Canopy, um, sometimes uh, it depends on what service you're getting it through, like which library, but um, you can get all three of the Apu films. Uh, so the first one's uh, Pather Panchali. So I highly recommend the Apu trilogy. Yeah, I know he had been uh, an assistant for Jean Renoir on his filming of The River, which uh, was produced and takes place in India. That was made in 1951. And I think he had made Pather Panchali somewhat shortly after that on like an absolute shoestring budget. It's like. Like less than a hundred grand, right? Well, it's one of those films like Eraserhead that took many years to shoot. He had to keep coming back. It's probably the only time someone would compare Pathra Panchali and Eraserhead. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it took a long time to shoot the movie, uh, and they finally it didn't come out till I think nineteen fifty five. But yeah, the first one came out yeah in fifty five. The next one in fifty six. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's like A P A. Apartja, apartjito, yeah. right? And then well, it's not Mexican though. Um, <laughs> Apartjito. Yeah, uh, the Mexican, third one is Spanish. The, yeah. Oh, the third one, the World of Apu, came out in 1959, and that might be my favorite one. Okay. But like I said, you should watch them in order. Um, all three of them. Yeah, are I think just the wonderful. the first and the third are the ones you see most on like the the ranking of the best movies ever. The best international movies are Pather Panchali and then uh, the World of Apu right. are the two that are most highly regarded. So you thought that was sort of how it went. The second one was good, but uh, the lesser of the three. Yeah, and I think that I think probably a lot of people think the first one's the best, but I actually think I might say the third one. It's also just because it's the conclusion, and it yeah. I just found it so deeply moving, like genuinely, like it stirs your soul and makes you think that you know humans are not that bad. You know, like we we yes. we, we can be good. It's one of those that reminds you like the goodness in humanity, like and like really genuine, like and not at all in a you know, manipulative or, you know, treacly way. It's, it's, it's like genuinely like great moving humane art. Well, I do love a film series about a character that goes beyond one movie. The, uh, Antoine Duenel series by, uh, uh, what's his name? Francois Truffaut. I also really, really like, so maybe I will get into the Apu trilogy soon. Um, right, and it, you love, you like literary adaptations I too. I do. So. And I also love Indian, uh, fiction. Right. So maybe so, I will give the Apu trilogy a watch in the near future. Uh, so what uh, what film have I not seen that I talked about that you feel like you most want to catch up on? And which one uh, will I want to see of yours most? I think, I, I don't know. I think probably the Apu trilogy, to be honest, is one that I feel like I should have seen by now. And will probably try to see somewhat in the near future. Right. And the ones um, I mentioned, I think Point Blank. I think you'd love Point Blank. I think you should right. try to see that soon. Right. I, I definitely have. Uh, it's just one of the many, many films that I have not seen. Um, but yeah, so those are just it's, a few it's almost films. like there are too many movies. <laughs> I know. And I I will. I'm done with the semester soon. So, I mean, it's funny because like my work is, oh, gosh, I got to watch Kill Bill and Taxi Driver for work now. You know, my life's pretty good, even though it's annoying teaching online. And uh, but yeah, I, I think that there are. That's why it's still good to have physical media because, uh, Carter, your internet has been out for a number of days. You yes. couldn't stream anything, right? Yes. Were you dying or were you like, oh, I could survive because I got Blu-rays? I mean, it's, it's very, very frustrating trying to do the sort of basic 21st century normal things. But, yes, I had enough physical media. that you know That's why I buy so many Blu-rays for in case well, the apocalypse happens, uh, I have yeah. a little bunker of Blu-rays. Well, it's like you didn't have internet for like five days, and then like you by the end of the fifth day, you looked like Robinson Crusoe, exactly. right? Yeah, I was <laughs> looking for foot, footsteps in the sand. Going, right. Internet, where are you? I remember one of my favorite things that Mark Marin ever said on his podcast. It was one of his earliest episodes. He had this bit about how he could not get his internet hooked up, and he was just like, it was so irritating to him. And he said that he finally got with a human on the phone, and he walked him through how to hook up his internet, and he said. And I'm going to tell you, folks, there is no way ever, never, 
that I would have ever been able to hook up the internet on my own. Never, ever. Not even if I were dying and I needed food. <laughs> like, there's no way I would have been able to do it. I feel that way about technology, too. Oh, yeah. I and mean, we're all having to rely on it now, you know, being stuck inside. It's one of those we're things you have... feel like the, the apes at the beginning of 2001. It's not working. You're just like, smashing it. Work! What is this doing? <laughs> Yeah, but hopefully this audio will sound okay and your internet has been I, good. It has been flawless so far. but Right. Yeah, so uh, we don't need to go through everything, but uh, those are some films we recommend. And uh, we can't promise that all of them are easily available, but no. a number of them. Most things you can rent on iTunes and or Amazon Prime oh, yeah. and or YouTube. And more than anything, watch TCM. Good stuff is on TCM all the time. And Most Criterion people get Channel. it. Criterion Channel, yes. Great streaming service. Uh, not sure what we'll have next time. Maybe a review of something neither of us have seen. Maybe another countdown. Well, but, it's it, this is depressing, but like uh, I'm going to be te- well. No, I'm I'm glad I'm going to be teaching a documentary film class, and uh, once I finally get time to finish, you know, uh, I finish my semester, I'm going to like I'm going to relax and watch Showa. I got that oh, on Blu-ray recently. Kick so back, can- crack open a brew, watch Showa for ten hours. Yeah, yeah. I got the restored uh, Criterion Blu-ray, so that's uh, it's. There's no excuse for anyone to not be able to watch some, you know, Showa or War and Peace adaptation or you know the long movies you love. It's true. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back with you.